16, verses 5 through 14. Matthew 18, verses 5 through 14. Kids, maybe you can find that in your Bible. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And, he find, and if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Amen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Kids, where does that come from? Psalm 23. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Where does that come from? John 10. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We read that today in Psalm 100. There are so many images in the Bible of God as a shepherd and we as his sheep. Here we see one of them in a parable. Now you might remember in Luke 15 that this parable is given in a similar way but with a different focus. In Luke 15, Jesus speaks of finding a lost sinner, someone who's not saved, and the shepherd bringing them into his flock as a sheep who is now a part of his pasture. Here in Matthew 18, the focus is different. This is a disciple of Christ who is wandering. This is a sheep who is straying. And the language of this passage over and over again is of warning against causing little ones to stumble. Children, those new in the faith, along with the comforting promise, as Jesus says, that it is not the will of my Father that any of these little ones should perish. Do you see that tension and that combination? A woe, which is a covenant curse, and a blessing. A promise that is based upon Christ and his faithfulness for us, 
And this comes in the midst of a chapter, Matthew 18, that's all about how we treat one another in the church. Do you remember last week? The warning was there of those who think that they're great, but really are not. There are great men and women of God. You know that. John the Baptist and others. Those who are humbled and realize that their greatness is found in Christ and his greatness, right? So that's the flow here. What does true humility look like in the church as members of the covenant community? First, we see a lost, wandering, and straying sheep. Kids, do you ever drive down the country roads and see sheep out in the pasture? Sheep are woolly and they're silly and they're not real intelligent, are they? Sheep are all about food. They will go wherever the food is, even if it means coming out on the ledge of a rock and then finding no way back and falling off a cliff. Do you remember that story a while back that one sheep went over the cliff somewhere in the Middle East and dozens others just followed? That's what sheep are like without a shepherd, and that's what we are without Christ. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We don't need a spiritual guide. We need a Savior to rescue us. All of us are tempted to feed on something other than Jesus. And the temptations here are in particular, Matthew 18, verse 7, coming from two places, actually three, the world, our own hearts, and others around us. Do you see what he says in verse 7? Woe, meaning, do you remember the covenant curse Jesus gave in chapter 11 to Chorazin and Bethsaida? They were not repenting in the face of what Christ has done. Now the world, not the world that God made that he loves, not the beauty of creation, but the world in the sense that it is fallen. Satan is the god of this world. We read that in the law today. He prowls around like a lion. That world wants to destroy you, mom and dad and kids. And the temptation is, I can have one foot there and one foot with Christ. I can do the thing on the dock where the boat is going, and I've got a foot on the boat, and I'm going to hang on here. And how long will that last, kids? No, it won't last at all. That's the temptation the world gives. The temptation of our hearts is, this really is good. You know, this sin, this feels good. And that's what temptation is. It never says, I'm going to ruin you. Do you remember Judas? He came to Christ with a kiss. Joab came with an outstretched hand and flattering words. Temptation never presents itself in its true colors. It's impossible to avoid being tempted. Luther said, I can't keep the birds from flying over my head, but by the grace of God, I don't want them to build a nest in my hair. Temptations will come. Jesus says that. Our temptations arise from the inner sinful desire, James chapter 1, that wants what we want selfishly and disregards God and his law. But the third part, not only the world, not only our sinful nature, the third part of the danger of temptations, and this is the warning to the covenant community, don't cause someone else to stumble. That's the focus here. Whoever loves his brother, 1 John, 
abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Jesus is saying these precious little ones, these children who believe in Christ, do you notice that in verse 6? They're trusting in Jesus. They know Jesus loves them. Some of them are new to the faith. They will have threats from the world, yes, but the focus here is in the church community. Verse 6. One pastor tells a story from many years back. He says he met this young man who grew up in the church but had left the church. We hear stories about deconstruction all the time. Some of them are for bad reasons. Some of them are for other reasons, perhaps along with the sin of that person, maybe the influence or the sin of others against them. This man said that this boy grew up, his dad was a pastor. His dad was a fake. After church on Sunday, you know what his dad would do, he said? He would just absolutely, with his words, shred everyone in the church. One week it'd be this person, the next week it'd be that one. He would shred them word by word, line by line with his tongue. There are many evils that have been done by those in spiritual leadership against little ones and against sheep in Jesus' flock. Many abuses Pastors, elders, and deacons who have sinned in doctrine or in life or both, or who have heard of sin happening within the church and have turned a blind eye and have not done what they are called to do to protect those ones, but instead have protected the one who has caused the sin. Jesus says this is a woeful, wretched evil. Watch out, he says, for those who flatter with their smooth talk, Romans 16. We need men of godly character, doctrine, and life to shepherd the flock. I'm thankful for the men God has called here. These elders and deacons love you. They love the Lord. We're not perfect men. Pray for us. The temptations you face, we face. Do you know that? That we struggle like you struggle? That we need prayer and we need Jesus and we need to rest in Christ like you do? Pray that we will watch our life and our doctrine. Pray that we will pay attention to ourselves, and the same is true for the whole flock. Do you see what he says in verse 10? This is not just a sin that a leader commits. This may be a sin that a little one commits against another little one. It may be a pride that someone says, I'm humble, and I'm more humble than you are, right? It may be that someone really wasn't sinned against, but they make it up that they make up a sin that someone did against them that is a lie and a slander. See how it goes both ways. It's our nature to sin, and it comes out in all sorts of ways. Verse 10. Does this verse teach guardian angels exist? Do you look at that verse? When I had my first car, what was your first car? It'd be interesting to talk about that. It was a 1986 Oldsmobile. It was my grandpa's car. It had little burn marks in the front seat, from his pipe and the tobacco that spilled out and left some marks. You could still smell the pipe smoke in the car. On the dashboard was a little sign that said, drive no faster than your guardian angel can fly. <laughs> I don't know who put it there. I don't know where it got, came from. Have you heard of that phrase? Clarence, it's a wonderful life. We've all got a guardian angel. 
Some people it says that, say it comes from this verse, verse 10. I don't think that's what it's saying in that way, but it is saying angels exist. As we worship, do you know there are angels present with us? We don't see them. And do you know that angels protect you in your life? Little ones and moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas? There may be times we can't even remember in our lives where an angel protected us. Hebrews 1.14. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So the promise here is angels will protect God's children from those who will cause them to stumble or sin against them. Jesus is saying, my people are valuable. My sheep are the ones that I died for. He's saying, search your hearts. Mom and dad, are you causing your kids to sin? Kids, are you causing your brother or sister to sin? When we give in to temptation, we're not a lone island. Our giving in to temptation, whatever it is, affects our family. If it's pornography, it affects your spouse and your kids. If it's your words, it may depress your family deeply. If it's your sarcasm or your evil speaking, or arguing to the point where you provoke an angry response, or our lack of forgiveness and reconciliation, or are enticing someone to sexual sin. These words speak to that. It speaks to the person who's in a relationship who is enticing that person to sin with them sexually in a way that goes against God's law. And Jesus is saying here, do you realize whose soul you're playing with? However young or old we are, do you realize the consequences of this? Do you realize that the angel of that person is before the heavenly Father? Are you ready to pay that price for your soul and that person's soul? The millstone is real. Verse 6. It's four or five feet across, a few feet thick. It would take an ox to turn this stone as they used it to make olive oil. It's a figure of speech, exaggeration. Major overkill, right? But it's saying the person who scandalizes, who causes one of Jesus' sheep to sin, it would be better if they had this stone around their neck and sank to the bottom of the ocean than to cause that one to stumble by the temptation that you're putting before them and by sinning against them. Better for a professing Christian and church leader to die than to teach false doctrine, than to fall into scandalous sin and cause someone else to stumble than for our words to drive someone from Jesus. Being drowned in the sea is not the woe. Do you see that, verse 6? The woe is far worse than being drowned in the sea. Jesus says, you're going to be tempted in all sorts of ways because sin is the fruit of being a sinner. Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. You see that? That's right from Matthew 5. Again, 
it's exaggerated language. He's not saying literally go do that. The early church father, Origen, had himself castrated to avoid sexual temptation. He's not telling you that. The metaphor is saying, whatever it is right now that is the occasion of you being drawn into sin, you and I need to flee from it. It might be a good thing in and of itself that we are putting in the place of Jesus and that is an idol in our heart. Jesus says, don't play with it. Don't mess around with it. Don't kind of dance around it. Don't go to the edge of it and then say you're going to pull back from it. The danger is the hell of fire. The eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. It will go on forever and ever. Eternal fire destroys a person without consuming them. These are pictures of something far worse even than the picture itself. The person is conscious of the torment. They are not annihilated. If our heart follows the way of our desire and temptation, one man says, Jesus is teaching, you and I will be separated from him eternally. Not because one sin leads to eternal judgment. We all deserve the wrath and curse of God. But because our temptation and following that reveals our heart. It shows we love something more than God. And the reaction to this very serious warning is one of two extremes. One is, everyone does it. Come on. Everyone looks at pornography. Everyone commits adultery. Everyone cheats. You know what? I've sinned against one commandment of God. I'll just break them all. I've sinned in my thought. I'm just going to do it. Same thing, right? No big deal. I'll just sin, ask Jesus for forgiveness, no repentance. That's one temptation. That's a lie from Satan. The other temptation is you've sinned and you need to be harsh on yourself and even more harsh on that person in your life who sinned. There's no forgiveness for you. Jesus couldn't possibly have died for that sin. You're not going to be restored. You've wandered off the cliff. Jesus won't bring that sheep back. Do you see the two ditches and the lies? Secondly, look at what the good shepherd does in his grace to find the lost wandering sheep. So you've got a hundred sheep. They're all really nice sheep, except one. Ninety-nine of these hundred are beautiful, and they're, they're fluffy, and they baa, and they don't bite you. And they don't make messes. And they give you really good wool. Oh, they're lovely sheep, and you love being with them. But you got this one, just one. He's wandered. He bites and it hurts. Just let him go. Don't worry about him. If you, if you go after him, what about the 99? That's the picture here. The shepherd must go after the one. The helpless one doesn't mean he doesn't love the other 99. That's another false kind of assumption. To go after the one doesn't mean he loves that one more than the 99. You, you, mom and dad, you know that with kids, right? You love all your kids the same. You struggle with that maybe. So do I. Maybe you pray, God, help me love them the same. 
But if one of your kids is struggling and you need to spend time with them and you go with them, it doesn't mean you love that one more than the others. So it is with Christ in a perfect way. He searches, he calls out, he seeks. This is a reference to Ezekiel 34. I search for my sheep, God says. I rescue them, they're scattered. They're injured, I bind them up. Those who are fat, I will destroy, but I will feed them in justice. Christ will feed his sheep. He searches after them. I was talking with a few different Muslims yesterday, one from a Muslim from uh, North Sudan, another from the Middle East, Iran, talking to them about the gospel. They were saying all religions are the same. Beloved, all religions are not the same. Every other religion begins with our search for God. Christianity says God seeks after us. Well, we were sinners, dead in our sin, and had no desire to seek after God. That's what God does to save a lost sinner. That's what God does to save a wandering disciple. He goes after those that have wandered. He's compassionate and tender-hearted. God is kind and patient, forbearing and merciful, gracious, and he delights to forgive. At some point, we all come face to face with the valley of the shadow of death. You can't ignore it. We can't remain neutral with evil. We either give up or we walk by faith in the shepherd who loves us. Without Jesus, the good shepherd, our life is meaningless. We are cynical. We are hopeless. We are fearful. The world has gone mad ever since the fall. People are searching for a hero. They're looking for someone to save them from all the bad problems out there, when that one hero and that one savior is this good shepherd. Woe to the shepherds who scatter the sheep, Jeremiah 23. But, Ezekiel 34, God says, I will set over them one shepherd. This is 600 years before the coming of Christ. My servant David, you know what he will do for you? He will feed you. He will guide you in paths of righteousness. He will protect you from all evil. He will watch over your day of your birth and the day of your death and every day in between. That one shepherd of Ezekiel 34, my servant David, is David's greater son. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Father sent the shepherd who came to seek us out. He became a man. He obeyed the law. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was at that point when I was talking to this Muslim that they paused. They said, whoa, Jesus didn't die. Beloved, he did. He laid down his life for his sheep. The Father so loved the world that he gave his son. He sacrificed not for his sins, but ours, in our place. His righteousness is given to us. Our sin is imputed to him. He rises from the dead. He sends the Spirit to open our eyes. He is 
the lamb of Isaiah 53, oppressed, afflicted, led to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. He died in our place for our sins to bring us to God. And so the gospel says, come out of hiding. We all want to put on a mask. That word has been used all sorts of ways, hasn't it, for the last few years? But think about it in this way. We, we all want to pretend. We come to church. How are you? I'm fine. No problems. We're great. The family's well. The gospel says don't lie. Come out of hiding. Confess your sin and shame to Jesus. He will wash you in his blood. He will clothe you in his righteousness. He will make you more like him. He changes you. He's more concerned with your holiness than you and I are. His kindness brings us to repentance. So we don't go around cutting off our arm or cutting off our leg. We need a heart that is uncircumcised to be changed. The circumcision of the heart. We need to repent of our proud hearts. And in Christ's kingdom, God's people, by his grace, are no longer dead in their sins. They're struggling with sin. But they're not cutting off body parts. They're loving and serving their brother and sister. They're not lusting after them as they once did by the Spirit of God. They are loving them. That takes the grace of God, not cutting off an arm. That takes the Spirit of God. That takes the mercy of God. Do you know God cares for you individually? That's what this text says. In your wanderings today, in your struggles, he knows you by name. Each individual. He understands your weakness. He knows the thoughts of your hearts. He knows those struggles you don't want to share with anyone else. He seeks you when you stray. You can come to Christ and rest. Stop trying to white-knuckle it and try harder and just do better. And That's the essence of unbelief. Jesus is courageous. He rescues you. He restores you. And when he does, when he brings back his wandering sheep, when he sanctifies them, as he does, he doesn't browbeat you. We can tend to do that. Someone sins against us, and maybe they sin against us again. And we go and say, you just did it. I'm going to hold this against you. You need to pay a pound of flesh before I forgive you. We tend to do that. Jesus doesn't. He doesn't hold us at a distance. This is our model as well, loved ones. Yes, as elders, but as a church family. When you have noticed someone's not coming to church for a while, or there's something that's a distance in your relationship with them, pray for them. Lovingly talk to them. Listen to them. Listen more than talk. Remind them of the importance of gathering as a church family. Do you remember the story of the man who visited that man who had not come to church for a while, and he went there, and there was a fire going on in the, the room, and he took a piece of wood out of the fire. He set it next to the fire. Kids, what happens when a piece of wood is separate from the rest of the fire? It goes out. The man looked at that, and he said, yeah, that's a picture 
of the danger of isolating myself from the body of Christ. On my own, a sheep on its own will be destroyed, eaten by wolves, or turn away. Because we can't live by ourselves. We need the gathering of each other, the flock. Sheep do best together, loved ones. Look at verse 13. And if he finds it, he rejoices over the rescue of the one lost sheep. More than, not instead of, the 99 that stayed in the fold. Do you notice the parable leaves uncertain, in this case, whether that sheep is found? There's a weightiness there. Not that the little one who knows Christ can fall away. Jesus died for every one of his people. He preserves them. But the parable is reminding us, like the others, of weeds among the plants, of the fish in the net, that those who cause the little ones to fall into sin may be false disciples who are in grave danger of being cast into hell. That's why the next part of the passage is about church discipline. Restoring the one who is wandering, but that one may not be a believer. The good news is God knows, 2 Timothy 2, those who are his. But not everyone in the visible church is a true believer. Not everyone who professes faith in Christ possesses faith in Christ. The visible church is a mixed multitude. If the little one is not restored, Matthew 18 then says, church discipline will be done to the point of excommunication for the prayer that that would bring this one back or save them for the first time. Covenant and election are not the same. And when the rescued little one who is either brought back from wandering or brought to faith in Jesus for the first time is found, his soul is saved from death. The one who is wandering is gently restored, Galatians 5. And if they are found, and every one of God's elect will be restored, and found and preserved. There is much rejoicing. Do you notice that your God rejoices in the salvation and the repentance and the restoration of sheep? The church is a place where we can say, I am a loved by God, justified sinner. I come here not to say I'm better than you, but I come here to help you and I look to Jesus for grace to grow in holiness. I come here to remember the joy of God. The Apostle Paul says, the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. God gets joy when sinners repent. God gets glory when his church is made more like his son. And so when you go astray into sin, Jesus says, come back. You are mine. Your heavenly Father is more willing to forgive you, a sinner who deserves 
judgment, then you and I are to ask him to forgive us. Your heavenly Father is more willing to be gracious to us than we are to repent. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Remember Jesus' promise. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hands. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Beloved, Jesus did bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He didn't die for us that we would live dead in our sins anymore. You are a new creation in Christ. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. But now we have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Amen. Let's respond and sing of our great shepherd, turning to page eight as we stand. <clears throat>